This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Brendan Jones from WSFM. Jonesy's been working in radio for close to 30 years, starting off in Caratha, then moving on to Musselbrook, Wollongong, Brisbane, and finally in Sydney, where he landed his dream job at Triple M and has spent the last 12 years on breakfast with Amanda Keller at WS. He chats about how he almost got sacked in his first job, what makes his on-air partnership with Amanda Keller so special, and why he missed out on hosting The Bachelor. Jonesy remains the same humble, down-to-earth guy I first met in 1999, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Brendan Jones, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Wow, what a great studio you have here, Ralph. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? What about the view? Beautiful. Does anyone really call you Brendan at all? I think my mum does and my wife does, and that's about it. Now, you're on ratings break from your highly successful breakfast program, Jonesy and Amanda. What do you do when that period comes around? I mean, I'm sure people are interested in... Do you just hang out? Do you go away? What's what's the story for you? Um, I just sort of hang out. I, I, it's just good to sleep. I find just getting up, you know, I had to sleep in the other morning till 6.30 and, and you, know, you wake up and you get out of bed and you go, whoa, how cool is this? But I just think, uh, no, it's just that, that's all I do. I just have a sleep and and drink a lot of beer and and not and it's good, you know, switching off, not reading a newspaper or watching TV or, or anything like that. I think that's good. Like how is that adjustment for you? Because obviously, like you said, you're up early every morning for the entire year. Do you still wake up early or do you find it easy to sort of transition into the sleep period? Yeah, I do. I wake up. I do wake up at three uh, still and I could pretty much get up then, could easily. But then there's that thing, well, no, I don't have to do it. So you just go straight back to sleep. So that's good. It's not like I wake up at three and go, oh, no, I can't get back to sleep. So like this morning I wake up. Uh, and I went back to sleep. I wake up at 6.30. I thought, oh, oh, and I'll stay. And then all of a sudden it was 8 o'clock. So it was really, it's nice. Now let's get in the time machine mm-hmm. and um, go back to where it all sort of started for you in, in radio. Yes. Was that something that was always in your mind to do and pursue as a, a, a career? Yeah, I, I think f- from the moment that um, I, I really liked radio when I was at school, but I didn't understand it like I, in, as much in, in, in so much as I, I didn't know how to get a job in it. It just seemed like what a cool job that would be. I went on a school excursion to 2SM and I just thought, this looks great. So that was the housing days of when they that were, was, they top, were the number one. So yeah, it would have been 1979. I would have been 12. And it was just, and for me, it was just amazing. It was such an amazing place. And there was like Paul Hogan was there because he was recording some ads and I saw Mike Gibson and, and I just went, whoa, you know. And the, and you call us a job, uh, and then after that, I sort of I, I just got interested. And at school, they made us record a little radio play, and I and I just really enjoyed that. I remember like doing the different voices and the actual. I guess you know I didn't even know there was a word for theatre of the mind, and that was my thing. So I started listening to a lot of. Um, you know, whenever I could on the plane or whatever, you'd listen to the comedy section and it'd be a lot of old goon stuff and old radio stuff. 
and and that was it. Uh, but it wasn't until really I, I got into my my teens that uh, I actually thought, oh, actually, I do want to do radio. I want to be serious about it. And that was the where the hard part was. So who were the people that you were listening to when you were, you know, bumming around in your teenage years and, and listening to the radio that you thought, right, I want to be them or I want to be a, a version of them? I think like John Laws, I, I started listening to him uh, as a youngster straight away. Um, and then when FM radio started, when Doug Murray came along, that was it. You know, I remember the guy, one of my best mates said, you should hear this guy on Triple M in breakfast. You know, he's really, you know, he's just really funny. And I, and then that was it. As soon as I, I became a Doug addict and it was just, you know, he was, he's the reason I'm here today. I just loved his work. And eventually sort of going down the track when you got to, to meet him and got to, got to know him a little bit, what was that like for you? I was. I remember I was at Triple M uh, in Sydney, and I was at Stuart Cranny's farewell, and it was that was kind of bittersweet as well because I was actually taking Stuart's job, and so was the Rock Dogs going, "Ah, oh, you big white ant, you've white anted Cranny," and I said, "No, I, I I was just here, and it just happened that way." But then Dave Gibson uh, grabbed me and he said, "You know." Come with me, and I said, "Why?" And I and I had a feeling because I saw Doug Moran. He's great. He's got my arm. He said, "Just come with me." And I said, "No, no, I I can't meet Doug. I just don't want to meet him." And he dragged me over, and then Doug looked at me and he says, "Ah, young Brendan Jones, it's nice to meet you." And I was, and I, I remember just like thinking, "Man, Doug Mulray knows who I am," and and he listened to my breaks, and and I thought that was really cool. So it was, uh, you know, that was a long time ago now. Why didn't you want to meet him? Was it the fact that you didn't want to sort of destroy that illusion of what he may have been and the, the, yeah. the, perhaps a, a disappointment or? I think it's like, yeah, when you meet a, a movie star or something, you, because you know so much about them and they know little about you. So there's that, you know, I didn't want to, you feel that you have a relationship with that person. And so I had in my mind that I'd meet him and go, oh, and what do you do, young man? Do you like the you – know? I remember I met him, <laughs> you know, Mike Hammond when I was in Wollongong and it was such – and Mike Hammond was another reason I got into radio because I, I met him uh, through his brother at school and he'd started in radio and, and I'd met him again in Wollongong and he'd kind of forgotten who I was and it was just sort of like, oh, you know, it, it just didn't – like I felt like I owed Mike Hammond a debt. <laughs> and I remember he said, he goes, oh, that's nice. Like he's talking to me like I'm set up some set yeah. old relative. So I just, you know, I didn't want Doug to do the same thing. Now, how did you then join the dots, okay? You had these aspirations of, of being in, in radio. How do you then practically go about it? Because it's not really a job that there's a whole lot of people that do it. No. No, well, so I went to uh, radio school, went to Max Rowley's Mid-Year Academy, and that was, you know, that would have been about 88. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, before that, I was a, a DJ in a club. So I was, uh, uh, and before that, I was doing, you know, uh, local, what do you call it? Uh, mobile disco. Uh, mobile, mobile discos. No, I hadn't yeah. discovered community radio because Max wasn't a big fan of community radio. No, he wasn't. No, I didn't like community radio. If you're going to do, if you're going to do that, you might, you want to do it here and not, you, you know, come here and pay you yeah, X amount on, of dollars. Do it on your own. I'll teach you up every month. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Max always wasn't a fan of community radio. So I, I never really did it. And it wasn't until, I left Max's. Uh, but having said that, Max was a, a, a good influence in the sense that I'd, um, I'd kind of given up and hadn't got a job and, you know, I was getting old. I was 19 and I thought, that's it. It's, it's, it's all beyond. <laughs> you haven't made it by then. <laughs> no, if you oh. haven't made it. Well, everyone else was like in radio was so young and um, so I would have been going more 20 and I was working on a building site in the city and I was making very good money 
And one day I was in the car park at Kent Street and I was just walking from a motorbike and I hear this, oh, look who it is. If it isn't one of my old students, Brendan Jones. And he comes on over and it's Max. And he said, hey, you know, you know what are you doing? And I told him, he said, well, you know, mate, you shouldn't give up. I said, well, look, you know, maybe it's not for me. And he said, look, I think you should come back to the academy. Yes. In Chalmers Street there. Come back and I'll redo your tape and, and we'll try again. And so I went back there and he gave me the shot in the arm to do it. And he actually gave me, like, I, I sent a tape. He said, send a tape to Caratha. Glenn McFarlane's winning to Caratha. I said, well, mate, everyone gets a job in Caratha. And so I sent a tape there and pretty much, you know, I, I think within six weeks I was in Caratha. It was that quick a turnaround. But I was like, I, I was like, Max, a, a deal of debt because that day in the car park, I didn't see him. He saw me. I had my back to him. Right. And he came across, yelled out from across the car park. So he had to make an effort to come over and. Yeah. And so you. I often then, he was with his wife and I was just sort of strolling back to the car. So I, I often wondered what had not happened had he not, you know, because that, that job, as I said, was well, good, well, you know, a, a good paying job. But I'd hate to be now working as some concreter. Yes. Lamenting that I never. Pushed it further. I think one of the things that Max is as well is that you made the introductory tape there for yeah. many years. Yes. Where he talked about oh, you, yes. you in the sewer and yeah, all that, that kind that of thing. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I think that was, uh, it was a hilarious introduction for people who, you know, obviously knew of you on the radio, but then there's a little introductory piece of the, you know, more famous students. Yes. And, uh, yeah, me and Rob Duckworth and, uh, uh, oh, Anthony was, Maroon, uh, Big Tone Maroon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Goodness. So, what did what Max teach you to sort of bring yourself out of yourself, or did he give you the confidence to do what you wanted to do, reinforce a mm. few things, or what was it that he sort of gave you? Because he gave different things to different yeah. students, I think. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I think Max, uh, for me, just taught me how to speak properly. So it was all that stuff, uh, and, and I, like most Australians, didn't really open my mouth when I spoke. So, you know, you'd say foin and light and fire and speak like that. So the, he taught uh, things about inflection and, and how to, when you're saying it, telling a story, how to make it sound natural, like you're not a big sing-song DJ. And everything used to be written, so you used to yeah. write things out, so it'd be like how to say what you had written down on paper without it sounding like you were reading. Exactly. And, and I, you know, I, I did that for a long time when I was at uh, right up to pretty much uh, the Triple M years. I'd, you know, because I was by myself, I'd write my breaks down, so I was focused on what I would write. I, you know, I wouldn't stick to that script, but I'd always just write down uh, when I was doing my breaks. Uh, these days, like with Amanda, I still write stuff down uh, and we kind of both write stuff down, but it's very – I look at our notes and they're very shorthand. There's a real – but there's still a, a format. And we're at a stage now where we go through our bits. Uh, we have a practice before we actually even put it to air, like yep. during the song. And so I'm going here with this and Amanda will go, right, and I'm going to say this. And, then, and you know, invariably it just works out and it works out better. That, and that's something that we've only really started doing. We used to just sort of not wing it. But we do stuff and we get there. But I think I was listening to uh, some you know, beauty of podcasts now. You can listen to some stuff you're doing now to stuff you're doing, you know, four or five years ago. And I, and I think we're a lot better than we were four or five years ago. And you have to be better. I think you'd scare, if we listen back to a podcast of us in 2010 and went, oh, gee, that was good, what, you know, then you think, oh, what have we done? Yeah, I think that's probably just the 
the way things evolve anyway and the mm. way that you've sort of managed to interact with each other and over time it yeah. just sort of feels better. And like you said, if it's sort of rehearsed in some way, even if there is variances to it, it can be a bit sharper maybe? Oh, definitely. And it's like watching an old Simpsons. You know, you dig up an old Simpsons from, say, the 90s and it just looks slow and, you know, everything looks – the animation looks dodgy. The, the Even Homer's voice doesn't – even the same Dan Castanella, but it just doesn't seem his voice. It's it's like a sort of a more uh, – it's just a slower voice. It's not as not as defined. So, Karatha, yes. that must have been a huge <laughs> learning experience for you. It was. I, um, I, when I got that job and I got, got there, I remember getting off the plane and they opened the plane door and it was like a blast furnace. And I thought, is there a fire? Is there, is there a furnace? <laughs> and, the, and the captain of the plane, he was standing there and he said, mate, and, it's, and, and this is like, it was January. It was like starting, he goes, this is, this is summer. It's not this hot all the time. He lied because it was that hot all the all time. The time. Oh, yeah, winter would get down to, you know, 28, oh. you know, which would be, be – people would be walking around in jumpers. But, yeah, it was so hot. And the radio experience for you, what was that like having been at Max's, always wanting to, to be a radio DJ? How did you pick things up? Or who were the people that sort of brought you along and, and taught you the tricks yeah. of the trade? Because, you know, there's nothing quite like learning on the job. Oh, definitely. I think uh, and from Max's, I did go to community radio at Bankstown and, you know, he, uh, you learn a bit of just about panelling. Yeah. So with Max's, you know, you couldn't really use learn much about panelling because you didn't have a panel. It was just two tape decks and, and that was it. So at community radio, I learned about cart machines and reel-to-reels and stuff like that. And so Karatha, that, that held me in good stead when I got to Karatha. I got pretty much the studio was pretty much like two BCR studios in as, you know, two record players and a reel-to-reel and two cart machines, which, which helped me, you know, uh, start that. And, and, and I found that that was, you know, pretty good. There wasn't really any great mentors. There was a guy, uh, like Mark Littler. He was the guy that gave me the job and he was a great guy. Uh, the boss was a bit of a, uh, he was like a, a Kenny could have been. He was on, um, a Darwin radio. But, right. Uh, but really all he did was crush any ideas that you had. I found in regional radio, there's a lot of, particularly general managers, and there was a lot of Kenny could have beens. Oh, mate, we're back in my day when I was on Armed Forces Radio. And they wouldn't, instead of encourage you, you'd have any, like he threatened to sack me within, in a month, within three weeks, because of something I said on air. And it was so benign, and it was uh, I back announced a song, and it was about it was about um, drug, like it was it was before the rave scene. It was a yeah, song yeah. called Little Louis, and it was uh, by Little Louis, and the song was called French Kiss. It's got this woman like orgasming in the middle of it, and it's a real trance song. And I, you know, I said, oh, this is from this new rave scene in the UK, and you know, people take a lot of drugs and they listen to this music. You know, you've really got to get into it. But what I meant to say was, you got to see it to believe it. But I said, you've got to get into it. Anyway, this woman's complained, uh, at, and this is at eleven thirty at night. She's worried about the direction I'm taking her kids, who are ten years of age. So Neville makes this big show and dance. He you know, calls me down at the station uh-huh. in the morning. He's got the flash log. He's standing there. He's incredibly high pants and his jewels hanging out. Not his, you know, his jewel chest jewels. <laughs> Mate, this is your last warning. You say this again, you're out of here. And I thought, Jesus, what did I say? Plays it back, and I, and I couldn't understand what I'd said wrong. And I said, and, and he said, Does, is that acceptable to you? Are you a drug taker? I said, no. And then I realised. I went, no, I meant. What I meant was you've got to see it to believe it, not you should get into it. I said, 
And he said, that's your, that's your love. I placated this woman. And at that point I'm about to say, well, why is this fucking woman, <laughs> why is the kids up at 11.30 on a Wednesday night? Oh, that would have been like a real eye-opener for her. And I guess it's mm. like you learn from your creativity being stifled in, in many ways. Well, yeah, you know, and I think if I, if I went back in time and, I, and roles were reversed, I'd support the guy that was on air. I'd go, mate, look, what's happened? Woman has complained. Uh, you know, I can probably see where you were going with it. You know, you just got to be careful about what you say. But the big song and dance, you know, this whole standing with his hands on hips, it was like... It was like I just I, I'd said pedos are great and let's all you know take ice. It was just it was so unnecessary. But that's what sort of guy he was. And would that have been like the sign of the times and the situation that you're in, like in the the mentality of the sort of yeah. you know, country radio station big wig that was just trying to assert his authority on yep. you? And I think they were sort of like kind of bitter. And and there was another PD that came along after Mark Little left uh, Tony Coke, who was really good. He, he came along, and he. Uh, was a radio, uh, like he'd actually worked in, in good radio in Victoria. And, and at the time, country radio in Victoria was real, it was the best market to be in because all the stations competed with each other. You could be in Taralga or you could be in Bendigo or Ballarat. Uh, you'd all be, there'd be a bit of crossover. So because yep. of the competition, you'd have, uh, great radio talent there. And Tony, he, I think he came from, um, I think it was Taralga. Uh, and he was just like, you know, Showed me a studio clock for the first time, how that worked. You know, like they, you know, break here, two songs, ad break. But it's Crather, we didn't have that. You yeah. put, the, you know, you put, so you'd have guys running about eight man ad breaks at once. And then one guy would be playing one song and it was just all over the shop. And so there was no format. There was no format at all. And I'd never even heard of a format. I, you know, Max didn't teach us that either. So when a radio, Tony was the first person that showed me the science of the, the hour clock. And, you know, that's in my head forever. So he was really good. So doing that kind of thing and putting things into perspective, I guess, would have been a, a good learning experience for your next move. Yeah. So the, the, I was at Carrather probably too long because uh, people in Carrather only stayed there for about six months and then you'd move on to somewhere else. Uh, my problem with Carrather, or well, the problem for me was after Niv, Nif, Nifty Nev left, uh, Phil Ude came along. And Phil uh, was a nice enough fella, but he was from the um, – uh, the the radio school down in Perth, so that suddenly became a breeding ground for all his new talent. Yeah, yeah. So shuffling the students in the door. Yeah, so I'd be doing nights, and all of a sudden, some kid who couldn't put two words to, together would be doing mornings, and uh, it just you know. And there was a lot of there was a, actually there was a guy in between him as well. So in the time I was there, I saw uh, I think four different radio managers of the station, and one guy was a local um a, a, a local. To entrepreneur who had no idea, just wanted to get on radio, but was dreadful. And so he put himself on mornings without any, oh. without any training. I did like listening to the show because it was so bad. It was like you'd be constantly Car off crash, air. You had to listen. Oh, and just the breaks would go, okay, we're on 6KA. And, um, and I love it. You know, you hear it on community radio when they're thinking out loud. That was a great song by Goanna and comes in a record cover. And yeah, it's. Really, it's an attractive record cover too. If you look at it, and like I'm making it sound quite, you know, quite succinct, but yeah, they just ramble on and go off to another world. So because of that, I ended up staying at Carrather long past uh, w- what I should have, and I ended up um, in the end accepting a job at Two NM in, in Musselbrook. And I'd been I'd, I'd been offered a job there 
when in the first six months that I was in Karatha, and apparently the program director fell in love with this young lady from the radio school, uh, not uh, the ACRO, what's it called, the, you know, the um, film and television. Film and television, yeah, yeah. Afters. And so I was all set to go. And I was like, oh, mate, we've had a bit of a, a problem. There's been a, a complaint that uh, we've got to give the job to a woman. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Smudge. Yeah. We've got to be a uh, – and, and I kind of accept it. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. No, that's, oh, fair, that's enough. fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And then years later I met, met the woman <clears> that, uh, I, you know, that, that took the job, the girl, and she's an attractive girl, and she said, she said, there's no such law. No, he just rang me up. He just said, he said, look, this job's perfect for you. This is for you. There was no, oh, no such thing. Goodness. So I ended up going to Musselbrook, and, and Musselbrook was a I, – I, I took a bit of a, a sideways move from Carthur, whereas I had the night show – uh, and I, the muscle book job was two days of production and weekends, and that was it. And I remember them saying at the time, "You're crazy. Well, why are you doing that?" And I said, "Because I'm not going to get out of Karatha. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to be want to get out of Karatha." Well, I, you know what? I, I remember saying to my wife or then girlfriend, "I remember saying, you know, what? I don't mind this town. You know, I'm a pretty big fish around here. People seem to like me." Uh, but I remember, I let, you know, in the end, they they said, "Well, look, you know, good luck." And then I got to, uh, by the time I'd taken the job in Musselbrook, they'd actually, um, uh, the afternoon guy had left. So I'd got promoted before I even got there to afternoons. And then within a month of being there, the morning guy left. So I was doing mornings. So all that time, the two years that I stayed at Carrather, and all I did was nights at Carrather for two years to see myself get passed over in the space of a month. I'd moved up the ladder and ended up, you know, working on mornings in Musselbrook. What was that like? It was good. Musselbrook was a real. It was it, it, it was run by the Cameron family, uh, Grant Broadcasters, who uh, are great. And uh, the boss there, Graham uh, Stewart, used to be on. He was on. He's a bit of a. He's a bit of a dodgy character, but I really liked him. Uh, he was on. His biggest claim to fame was he was on Midnight to Dawns at Three XY. And I thought that that was so cool. I thought if I can get, and we'd get anywhere near that. Uh, we'd have right. Friday drinks yeah. and he'd, you know, regale us with stories about, you know, hanging with Molly Meldrum and stuff. And I'm just thinking, man, if, if I can just get as, you know, if I could just get midnight to dawns in a capital city, that's, you could, that, that's me for the rest of my life. It's funny you have that thought when you're a young person, whereas I don't think the aspirations of people, younger people these days would no. think. Mid-dawns, not that there's many shifts available well, there's, no, these days, there's, there's, um, you know, that that would be the bee's knees. Yeah, and, and it is weird. I think uh, – and back – I think back then, though, we didn't do radio to be famous. I think everyone wants to be famous now. We've become like America. All the kids that go on those shows like The Bachelor and stuff like that, they just want to be famous. And it's quite – because for me doing this for as long as I have, I think, well – Actually, what is what is fame? What do you what do you want from it? What what was it for you then? Was it like a skill or a profession that you were chasing? That was something that was much mm. sort of sought after. If it wasn't because I mean, people in radio or TV or media in general who tell you that they don't have an ego, well, they're they're Lights. lying. They're yeah, ginormous yeah, yeah, yeah. lies. So I think we sort of get that off the table. Yeah. But I guess there is a difference in the the quest to be famous. And yes. or be elevated to be famous, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think. Look, I think I always dreamed of like being like you know Doug Murray. You know, you'd watch him on sixty minutes, and you'd see him with you know his multitudinous properties and cars and all that sort of stuff. And you think, well, that's that that's what it is. And and Doug is famous for that for being Doug Murray. Um, and but I was quite shy in my early 
days, I couldn't speak in front of people. I, you know, I could do a radio show, and that's what I liked about it, like the anonymity. You could do a radio show, you could communicate with people, but you didn't have to stand up in front of people and actually talk. So I think that was part of it. That was a, a big part of it you know, in those early days. Was that brought out of you, like in terms of in those early days just – being able to, I guess, craft breaks and put things together and, you know, were there in, in Musselbrook, were there any people there that you thought, right, well, you know, they're going about things the right way, I'll take yeah. a bit of that, I'll take a bit of something else and then yeah. become you? There was a guy, there was a couple of guys there that I looked up to as far as there was a young guy called Anthony Maley who used to do the uh, breakfast show who I thought I had a bit of potential. Um, I don't know what happened to him, but he, you know, I used to listen to his breakfast show and I go, man, this guy's on it. You know, he's, he'd say funny things and he'd interact with the news, uh, dude. And, and, and I, I, he was real. He sounded, he sounded quite good. So as far as that goes, I, I remember thinking, well, yeah, that's what I want to, you know, that's what I want to eventually be like. Obviously, making your way to a, um, a capital city was the goal. Yeah, um, it was just how did Triple that come M. about? It was all Triple M. Like, it was just for Triple M, and that was my obsession. And, I had, and that, that was something that was mentioned on the tape as well. That, yeah, you know, you, <laughs> the Max's tape that you know while you were driving to do the sewers or whatever, yeah, I, you had dreams of driving. Oh, or you were driving past the Bondi Junction Triple M studios yeah, and I, with that was your goal in mind. I, that was my my number one thing was just to work at Triple M, and I hadn't given any other thought about what I would do once I got there. Unfortunately for me, when I got to Triple M, it was like an empty room. It sort of, I got there, but then there was no further I could go. Uh, and I really, like, you know, ideally I would have done breakfast there, but that was never to be. Um, so it was it, it was very, uh, and I was very dogged in getting to Triple M, you know, but when I was in uh, Wollongong, uh, I'd been doing afternoons in Wollongong, so this was after Musselbrook. I'd been doing afternoons for a while, and I probably about three years. And I thought, oh, I you know, Wollongong's nice, but you know, you're going to be there for the rest of your life, you know. And no one's. And I'd send tapes to Sydney, yeah. And there's no way they're going to give you someone out of Wollongong a job in Sydney. So I just sort of sat back and you know, kind of cruised for a bit. And then one day I had this like looming crisis because I made this pact with myself that I'd be in commercial, uh, in Capital City Radio by the time I was 28. So this was the start of the year in, um, uh, of my 28th year. So, uh, whatever that was, 1996. And I thought I just made these tapes and like I, I was really happy with what I was doing on air. I, I really, became focused on what I was doing there, put together a really good audition tape. But that, and it was the way I sent the tapes that I had these uh, cassettes, all these black cassettes, and I got a blowtorch and melted them a bit so they looked all grey and melted. And then I got my orange cassette and put it in there and just didn't put any big crap resume or anything, just said no. sometimes a tape will stand out from the rest. And uh, so I sent that along and it really had an impact because all of a sudden I had like about 15 – like, like, and this is the day of answering machines. My wife said, what have you done? And I said, what do you mean? She says, answering machines, is cool. all these guys want to talk to you from different radio stations. Wow. And it became sort of like uh, a legend, like all these other guys had heard about the tape, tape that I hadn't even sent. So, so how many did you send out? I sent probably about, it was 15, sent out 15 tapes. Uh, and, and I went, and I, it was just all capital city. None right. of them were regional because I was at Wollongong. That was, you know, that's a provincial market. So it was all Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide, I think Perth. I, I thought, yeah, I could go to Perth. Uh, 
Gold Coast. Right. No, no, I said no to the Gold No, I did go to the Gold Coast. I went to the Gold Coast because I thought that would be nice. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and that was it. And the, um, uh, the amount of traction I got out of that from people. So did you just say, right, I've tapped onto something? Yeah. Just so that, purely on the presentation. It was pretty the much the presentation, but the tape was really up. I, I was at a right, I really focused because when you work in uh, regional radio, provincial radio or regional radio, you really, it comes out down to you how hard you work. You know, you can sit there and just phone it in. Yeah. Or you can actually make an effort and, you know, look for a good break. Well, because I'd imagine there'd be two types of people. There'd mm. be people that are busting to get out and get to a cap city yep. and people that are just happy. That's, oh, the their, that's their, their ultimate yeah. is just to make uh, it there. And there's nothing wrong with it because, you know, it's still a hard job to get into. You know, like I challenge anyone to try and get a job at Wollongong Radio. It's not like something that's, you know, that's that easy. You just walk in and get it. So uh, for me, I, I Brian Ford rang and – he had an offer, a B105, and I went, oh, B105. And uh, Duncan Campbell, who's now our boss at, uh, Oz, at ARN, said, he said a thing, said, look, I really like the tape. He was over in Perth at the time. He yeah. said, oh, look, you know, I'd like to do something with you down the track. But it was Brian Ford. He said, look, I've got a job right here late nights at Brisbane, uh, and I think you'd be perfect for it. And I thought, and at that stage, I'd said I didn't want to do midnight to dawn. I was thought I'd made the. You'd ruled that out. Yeah, because I'd be doing afternoons <clears throat> in, in Wollongong, and I thought I got to move, make the next move. So I took the job at BNI Five, but yet again, you know, there was a bit of a it was a risky move because I lied how much money I was getting paid in Wollongong. So uh, he, because uh, so he was saying, well, look, we can't, we can't. I can do a little bit more. So he said, I'll give you five grand more. And I went, oh, great. I'm sitting there because I've actually played downplayed it by yeah, yeah, yeah. 15. So he's actually <laughs> given me 15 grand more. And so I ended up uh, doing late nights there. And I wasn't there for long. I was probably there for uh, six months. So late nights, when we're talking about that, that's like 9 to 12 or yeah. something like that? Uh, yeah. Then that was, yeah, 10 to, it was 10 to 1. Right. And the most galling thing was I got there and because they, uh, they, so Triple M was in a state of they killed Triple M. Uh, all around the country, and it was making it doing a, a network, national network sort of thing uh, out of Sydney. And I remember I got to Brisbane, I ran into Mike Perso, who's the boss of Triple M. And he goes, "Ah, oh, look at you, Brendan." Jones. right, yeah, mate. I so like I, I so wanted you to do mornings here at Triple M. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, oh, well, yeah, yeah, where? And this is what I'm doing late nights at B105. I'm like, yeah, but you know, mate, you're at B105, and I'm yeah, but you know, but, but, and they gave it to Claire Blake, and I remember. Um, Thinking, you know, and Claire, poor old Claire, because yeah. Claire was sitting there, and I said, Claire Blake, and she goes, Yeah, dickhead, that's me. And I went, Oh, you know, and I was just like, I was such an arsehole. I was, it was such an ass uh-huh. thing to say. And I'm very good friends with Claire, but she'll always remind me of that, you know, you thought you should have got that job over me. And I, I ended up uh, being at B105 for six, yeah, it was six months. And then the word was that Greg Easton was leaving Triple M. And Mr. T, who's just passed away, uh, he I, – I used to row with him, which is another long story, but one day he said, mate, let's get you over to Triple M. And I went, yeah, yeah. So Rod uh, ended up, you know, talking to Jimmy Johnson and, and Mike Perso and, and, they, and I think Jeff Ellis sort of weighed in on it as well. And I said, well, yeah, let's get him to Triple M Brisbane. And that was it. And then I got the, that job offer and it was when Crowded House were playing at the Opera House, that big Opera House – and I remember doing the late nights at Burn 5 and I hadn't heard from anyone. So it was all, and I thought, oh, man. And I remember just watching that concert on TV and I'm just going, man, I'm never, and I saw a Triple M logo. Yeah. And I went, oh, I'm never going to get there. 
it's not going to happen. And You're then so close. It's so close. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I just remember being so depressed. And then the um, uh, next day the call came. It was Jimmy Johnson. Mate, we need, mate we need to come, you need to come over. We're going to talk. And uh, I went over and I, I didn't even negotiate for money. I didn't. You, know, you just said, what are you Straight what away. You got? I think I was like, you know, so well, and the job was afternoons at Triple M and I didn't negotiate for money. I didn't ask for more money. I just went. And my wife said, are you an idiot? I said, no, this, this job is bigger than money. And it was, and that was it. So, so what was it like for your wife? Because you married quite young, and mm. yeah, you, your kids and stuff like traipsing them all around the country just to pursue your Good. ultimate goal. Yeah. Well, I think Morgan, my eldest, is now twenty four. We went from he 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 was born in uh, Musselbrook, so he was a Musselbrook baby, and then he went to Wollongong, uh, and then he went to Brisbane. And then back, our daughter, uh, Rome, she was born in Brisbane. And Dominic, the youngest one, he's hasn't had to move. It's always been Sydney. So uh, they didn't mind. I think Helen always looked at it as a bit of adventure. She was a bit of, she didn't really have much to, not, she didn't have much to do, but career-wise she was working as a nurse. She didn't really like it. And then so she went back to uni and so she had to defer her uni a couple of times. But I, I think she was always, I, I think deep down if I said, well, look, you know, we're going to move again. Not that I would. She'd be a yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's a bit of a traveller. So she likes. So that. what's that like having that kind of support behind you, knowing that you were always in full pursuit of of a dream for yourself? Yeah, I think it was. I know it was good. It was good. It was good to have that. I I, I never felt. I did when we were in Brisbane, uh, coming back to Sydney. Helen did want to leave Brisbane, and that was very hard. And the word had come out that. Um, uh, I'd heard Dave Reimer had left and Jim Johnson rang me one day and he said, uh, he said, mate, I just don't feel we're paying you enough money. And I said, well, Jim, you know, that's all right. And I don't actually negotiated after that first time. I'd been there for about three years. And, uh, he said, I just don't feel that we're paying you enough money. I'm going to give you a pay rise. And I went, okay, sure, Jim. He goes, how's 10 grand sound? I said, great, great, great. Yes. You know what? It's not enough. How, how does 20 sound? Oh, how easy is yeah, that? I know. And I, and I said to Jim, I said, look, Jim, I want to go to Sydney. There's nothing you can do to stop me from going to Sydney. I said, mate, we, you know, we, we see big future for you here in Triple M. And I said, look, I love it. I, I, you know, I really like it there. And, and, but I just said, Sydney's, that's it. And so he had rung, Guy Dobson had rung him and said, mate, we want him down in Sydney to do Rhymer Shift. And Jim said, well, mate, wait till he calls you. Don't. You know, oh, right. Okay. And then he yeah. said exactly the same to me. And then Jim said to me, I said, well, I want to go to Sydney. I said, well, don't go calling Dobson. Wait till he calls you. So for weeks we were played off against each other. And then we had to do an, a broadcast for the State of Origin down at Triple M. Right. And um, we did it out, you know, because of the new stadium had just opened down here. And we went out and I ran into Yatesy, a guy I used to work with in Wollongong. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He goes, the word is, you, you know, you're not calling Dobson for about this job in Sydney. It's your job. They're all talking about it. And I said, mate, I haven't even, I'm waiting for, they told me that he was, you know, he's going to call me. Oh, the Mexican standoff. It was the Mexican standoff. So I ended up uh, ringing Guy straight away and he said, mate, well, let, let's talk about it. And then the next thing, Helen said, look, you can't go there unless you get decent money. And, and, and I said, okay. So I rang Guy and he said, okay, mate, you know, director's guy is, Jobs worth yeah, jobs jobs worth uh, what was it? Jobs worth hundred. I went a hundred. I said I thought you know afternoons in Sydney would be a lot more than a hundred. He goes, mate, that's what the money is. You either like it or you take it or don't. And I said, mate, I, like I'm getting that in Brisbane because you know, I was doing a network show in Wollongong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, mate, I'm getting that in Brisbane. Sydney's more expensive. And he goes, he said, 
how much would it take you to come here? And I said, oh, I'd have to be at 110 at least. And he goes, right. And he goes, mate, I don't know what's going to happen here. And he just hung up and I've gone, oh. Do you think you'd crooked it at that yeah, stage by I, like just pushing it too I, far? I went home to Helen I said, and she said, she said to me, she said, well, it's fine. We'll just stay here in Brisbane. I, and I, I don't know how we would have gone if I'd stayed in Brisbane and not. So I remember just – and we – I went for a walk. We had a dog at the time and just sitting in this park and it was had exactly the same feeling when the crowded house thing was <laughs> sitting there. Was going, Did you think about that the other night when it was on TV I was again? A, I know. Well, I'm not really trying for anything lately, so it's good. It was just, it was quite relieving to sit there and watch it and not have that stigma. And I thought, oh, man. And then a guy, uh, Jeff Ellis apparently intervened and said, uh, guy rang up, rang up, you know, uh, straight away, uh, the next day and just said, look, okay, 120, three years done. And I went, oh, okay, done. Because at the same time, they were. So, really, what year is that? That's 90. So, that was 90. Yeah, 90. Yeah, started in 99. Yeah. So, there was that. But also, had Nova. Nova hadn't started. And they were. Dan Bradley had rung me and he said, oh, mate, we want you on the Nova network. And I went, yeah. And he said, yeah, we're going to send you to the Sunshine Coast. And I said, mate, I'm not going to the Sunshine Coast. It's either Sydney or that's it. Oh, no, we can't send. Well, I said, well, I do this. He goes, we will send you to Sydney eventually. We just don't have any stations there yet. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to the Sunshine Coast, finding that you've started a station. And I was, sorry, Jonesy, you're going to be our Sunshine Coast. I'm not going backwards. So <laughs> that was it. That was that. So to finally get to Triple M in Sydney after oh, pining for it for what would have been, what, 12 oh, years? Or? Since probably since, no, well, since 1983. Oh, right, okay. So, so we're going sort of, you know, not since lot. you sort of started in radio, but yeah. even before that, like just when you had it pegged as a career yeah. to, to get there eventually. What was that like to walk through the, the oh. doors and, and – you know, do your first shift. Were you nervous? What? How? What? Take me through the the thought process. I was pretty calm, and I remember I, I got there, and the first person I met next to Barbie at the front desk was Amanda. Amanda came to the front door. And she says, "Oh, hello. You're the new. You know, you're Brendan. Yeah, the new guy. Yeah, hello. I'm Amanda Keller." And I said, "Hello. How are you?" And it, it just seems odd that she was the first person I met, but they were so nice, and it was such. You know, that station is such a dream factory. You go up. You know, it was at Bondi Junction, but it just you know, it, these are the the halls where Doug Moray walked and, you know, this cranny was on air when I walked in. I'm just going, whoa, and the club veg were there. And I was just, it was just mental. It was the best, I think, that year. And Triple M was smashing it. I remember the ratings for afternoons. Dave Ryman left and I started, so I was in the August. So the August ratings came out probably two weeks later. And Ryman's show, but the newspaper wrote that I did it, this new boy's yeah, on yeah. fire. But it went to 18s in the afternoon. So, Unheard of. Yeah, these days. and then all of a sudden the newspapers come and taking pictures of me and I, I felt like a bit of a fake because I'm thinking, well, I actually had nothing to do with me. It was Dave Reimer, but, you know, I remember it was the rock dog going, nah, mate, just go with it, just cash in on that. <laughs> but it was just crazy. I, I loved it. It was such a great time. It was really good. As I've sort of said to a few people on this podcast, Anthony Maroon, and there's been a few other people that have worked at Triple M over the years, worked at Bondi Junction, and also worked at World Square. Mm. I don't know, you don't. I don't think you ever worked at World no, Square. No, no, never made it to World Square. But that Bondi Junction radio station, that was a real radio station. Oh, definitely. It smelt like one. It yep. looked like one. Yeah, it was. You know, yeah, <laughs> and like everyone smoked, and even though you weren't supposed to smoke anymore, you know, uh, and Kath O'Connor would tell people, yeah. you know, no smoking, there'd be these memos, and there'd be Vic Davies just smoking away. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, you know, it was a sort of place. Uh, those days can't last forever, you know. The, no. um, the, the, and I remember at the time thinking, you know, the amount of boozing on, the drugs, everything, you know, the place just smelled 
of dope, you know, you'd go into the dunny, there'd be coke everywhere, you know, it was just, and I never really partook uh, in that stuff because I knew if you did, that would be the start of a slippery slope to, you know, a bad life. So I remember one time uh, after a smashing ratings uh, and I walked into a cubicle and there was, uh, I won't say who was, but he's pretty well known, racking up a big line. I said, do you want part of this? And I went, no, nah, no, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I, probably best. I might wait till after lunchtime. Uh, and so that was, you know, I made a decision then. But I think those, those days the writing and was on the wall. And I, I think for me at my time at Triple M, when I left in uh, the end of 2002, the station had been gutted. You know, a lot of people had been sacked and, you know, it was the, the money that was going around wasn't going around anymore. And Do you think that's sad for the, the industry or uh, sad for the, I, I guess, the devaluing of what was what you idolised, a, mm. a really much coveted yeah. position? I think, I think it's sad, but also it was, you know, you used to get paid a lot of money because you had to, not everyone could do that job. You no. couldn't panel. You know, to panel, like Triple M uh, up until, like I was still, so this is 2002, I was still editing on Reel to Reel. You know, and, and no one could turn, like I could edit a call, chop tape, do all that. And I reckon I could still do that as quickly uh, as I, well, not as what I can do on a, uh, the new editing systems. But, and, and that's what it took. So it took a lot of, you know, and you had to have a good uh, presence of mind because you had your DCS, which was terrible, the digital card system. Yeah, yeah. And you had your CDs. So uh, when I left, they had Maestro, but Maestro was just starting. And to edit on that was a nightmare. Uh, so You're a conductor, mate, and you've got to speak on the radio exactly. at the same time, and you know, yeah. make sure that the that the songs fade in and, yeah. and fade out correctly, and your ad breaks are all queued up. And it's just like yeah. people think that okay, well, it sounds good on the radio, but there's a guy in there just yeah, you working know. a million miles out. And I think that craft has sort of lost. I don't want to say, the risk of sounding old, but I was listening to a, one of the Triple M uh, afternoon people, I think, and they said, and that's there's more coming up after this, and then they go into ACDC back in black. It's not after this. It's, that's fucking back in black. It's not after this. <laughs> like after this. Show some respect. I know. I just, oh. I, just I, I was in the car and I just, well, what, after this, oh. are you back in black? You know, back in black starts. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the perfect riff to talk over. You know, the city by the bay, the city that rocks. Is, you know, it's just, it's crazy. So learning that kind of skill, that's mm. obviously something that you've been yeah. that's that, that's gone, that somebody's not getting taught, you know, that this – or are they being brought into the wrong style of radio station? Because is, that's something that you would yeah. have picked up when you were working at your various different ports yeah, around the country. I think so. There was a – when I first started, there was a – you know, I remember Nifty Never McGrath who sounded like he, – he, this is how he'd sound. BJ, he'd call me BJ. Uh, BJ the DJ coming up later, and that's how he'd speak. And he'd say, mate, the problem with you is you don't sound like a DJ. You've got to sound like a DJ. And I thought, and I used to think, I used to try really hard to sound like a DJ, and it was never, it never really sat well with me. And, and then years later, I always like when someone says, you know, um, you sound exactly like you sound on the radio. You don't sound any different. Yep. And that's because you don't want to be like, that's Some, a great compliment, isn't it? It is. You don't want to say, or, or sometimes, like someone says, do if someone says you do your radio voice, you know, <laughs> how much do you hate that? Well, that means that if you if you have to do a radio voice, you think, oh, so I've got a radio yeah, voice, yeah. and maybe you do. You probably enunciate a bit better, but but that's about it, you know. Oh goodness! So that whole experience there of being part of that Triple M family when it was 
back on the the up again. Yes, uh, and you being there and being a, a big part of that. Was there a whole heap of satisfaction? Like oh, what, yeah. when you when you had nailed it for a few surveys and were there and and you were living and breathing it every day. Yeah, that must have been just like Christmas. Yeah, it was. And you know, Andrew uh, and Amanda were doing the breakfast show, and then I was doing mornings. And then uh, the famous Todd Campbell, I think, was doing afternoons, and then you know the veggies, and it was yeah, it was just a. At that time, I just thought you know we're unstoppable, and the station was killing it. It was beating Two Day, uh, it was beating everyone. It was number one, and 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 I just thought, and it had such a good vibe. You come into work, and I think for me the the start of the beginning was when Kath O'Connor left. When Kath left, I was like, oh, because I really liked Kath. And then when Dobbo left, I was like, oh, and then. So could you see? I could. I could see. And, and, <clears throat> and what happened was I was the only one that was given. So I signed a three-year contract uh, with Triple M in 2002 and um, that's when WS came calling. And I remember one day um, Graham Edwards from WS rang up and he said, we want you to come over and do breakfast. And I thought he was actually originally because he was a bit of a bumbling sort of guy. He left a message on my phone and it was, yeah, mate, we just want to catch up. And I thought it was about the radio awards, you know, the different stations right, yeah, host yeah, yeah. the radio awards. They wanted me to do something. So I sat around and said, yeah, what do you want me to do? And he goes, oh, we want you to do breakfast. And I, I went, oh, pff, breakfast? What, what, a 2WS? Oh, it's WSFM now. I said, oh, mate, look, no, uh, that's fine. Good on you. Yeah, that's what's your name? Graham? Yeah. Good. Yeah, mate. No, no, look, that's funny. I thought you wanted me to do something for the radio awards. And I could have, and I said, look, I, I've just signed a contract with Triple M. So, you know, I, I, I wish I could have taken your job. And I couldn't think of anything worse than working at WS back then. It was a joke. And I, and I remember thinking, so he rang back. He was very persistent. He kept ringing back. Yeah. And so each time he'd ring back, I'd say, mate, look, it's not going to happen. I've signed a contract. He goes, we can get you out of that contract. I said, no, I don't want to work at your station. And so it went on and on. And then one day I'm on the phone and he, and he, I was recording a thing of Planet Rock. And, uh, he said, uh, I, I, and it came down to money. He said, look, you know, we can pay you. And I said, come on, you guys are owned by Clear Channel. You've got no money and your station sounds like hell, you know. I'd probably get more get, getting paid to do Planet Rock than I'd get paid as one of your announcers. Yeah. He said, well, that's not true. And he said, how much are you making? And I told him. And he said, we can triple that right now. And I've spat <laughs> tea out. <laughs> Gee, that WS sounds like a good station. Well, it was, and, but it still I wasn't convinced. I was like, really? Because I, 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 I was very close with Guy, so I had open dialogue with Guy about it. Right. And I said to Guy, I said, mate, WS just rang up and offered me breakfast and he goes, and we both laughed and he said, mate, look, it's not for you. Um, uh, you know, you've just signed a contract. And I said, thank you. So he took it out of my hands and I said, great. So, um, I was really happy with that. But then with Graham, he kept keeping to persist when he got to that money thing. So I went and, uh, actually met with them at a, at the Centennial Hotel, uh, Graham and the, the manager who's Dan who's now left a long time ago, and we're sitting there and, and I said, look, guys, the money's good, but, you know, it's uh, your station's just, I couldn't in good faith work for your station. I'd just be doing it for the money and that's just wrong. Cause, and I said, well, tell us, well, what do you hate about our station? I said, it's hokey, it's old, it's out at Blacktown. Oh, we've moved from Blacktown. I went, okay, where have you moved to? North Ryde. And they go, North Ryde. And I went, oh, great, the heart of the city, North Ryde. And I said, it. Your current on-air tactic is dreadful. There's this thing called write your own check. And this old 
like guy doing a fake person, fake old voice, write your own check with them. And I thought it just, I said, your station is just dreadful. It's a joke. And it's rating. It's like rating about fives. And this was back before, uh, long before uh, Vega, yeah, yeah. whatever that was. And so it was right, you know, right down there. And I said, that's just a joke. And then they said, look. And so they, they actually gave, came back with even more money. And I just said, and then so then they said, we're not going to let you go. We're not going to, he was very persistent. So what was it like getting phone, oh, constant phone crazy, calls from crazy. this guy that you had no interest in working? You'd bag their station unmercifully yeah. to their, their management and then all of a sudden they still want you. Yeah. So, like, at what stage is it sort of starting to seep into your, your mind and thinking, gee, this guy well, really want me? I think it was also this guy was leaving Triple M. And then a guy called Simon Mumford was taking over. So he got stuck into me. He goes, why are you talking to WS4 anyway? And I said, mate, I can't help if they think I'm good and they want to offer me a shitload of money to do breakfast, which you guys passed me on. You know, I could have done the breakfast show with Amanda. And I said, so I can't help that. So he put my back up. So uh, there was this and, – and Guy one day called me and said, well, I think we've got to have a chat. So I went into it and I was, remember riding my bike into the city and I got to like the airport and I thought I was going to chuck up. I just felt so sick. And then I got in there and there's a guy with his feet up on the desk and he said, uh, he said, mate, I'm going to let you out of your contract. You've got to take this job. And I said, really? And I just, I said, oh. and I felt like Kevin Campion when he got traded from the Broncos to the Warriors. I went, oh. And he said, mate, we can't offer you anywhere near what these guys are offering you. And further to that, when your contract finishes in three years' time, we'll probably cut it by about 60%. You know, the, the days of you making that sort of money on daytime radio are gone. And I knew that. I knew uh, – I always had the safety of when I worked at Triple M and Stuart Cranny was on, uh, I always knew that Cranny got paid a lot more than me. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm, well, Cranny's here, I'm fine. But when yeah. Cranny went, I became the big black duck on the, the thing. And it's true. There was just no – you know, you can get anyone to do afternoon radio now. It's like that That system just runs itself. Yeah. You know, you don't need any skill. Uh like uh, I'm not sort of down talking anyone that's on air, but there's a you know the skill has to come in, in your, with your content. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I mean, and it goes back to what you're sort of saying before, just like little things with yeah. music and yeah, uh, and <laughs> after and this, tracks and yeah. you know that kind of stuff like oh. that. You know, and I, as I said, I sort of spoke to Maroonie pretty much on the same wavelength because as we're old, like, we're old, yeah, old, you're old guys old, that old have guys. sort of done it uh, uh, years and years and years and and just cared about not only the radio station that you were working for, mm. but the music. Yeah. Because the music makes the radio station, right? No, exactly. You know, um, yeah. it might not as much these days because I don't think – do you think the music is good as good these days? Do you think we'll still be remembering the current lot of, you know, gibbers that are, you know, that are doing um, music these days as we sort yeah. of look back on, you know, the great ACDCs and the, the, the other great so. bands? I think, like, you know, you look at, like, Wolfmother, you know um, – you know, the Joker and the Thief, that's a song that, you know, that, what that came out in 2006, you know, or Straight Lines by Silverchair, you know, that, I, I, like, that's sort of like there of songs that are already becoming classics. Uh, like I think Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars, you know, that's going to be a classic in years to come. So, and also I think, uh, actually Justin Timberlake's new thing can't, uh, can't stop the feeling that that's going to be a, a big hit in years to come. I think those, those will be the fodder for WS of the future. So yeah, I think that you know I'm not a big fan of R and B or rap, uh, 
But I'm sure there's like, but then again, I was listening to Gangster's Paradise and I thought, what a great song this is. I remember when that came out. Yeah, B105. Yeah, B105. And I was thinking, oh, I don't like this, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's, yeah, so there, 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 there's songs that you go. Like I remember when Run DMC came out with Walk This Way and Aerosmith, I was going, oh, rap crap, this is crap. But I love that song. So, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be okay. We sort of digressed there yeah, a little sorry, bit. Um, but um, going back to that move there, so mm. you, they eventually got you. Yeah, went there and I remember going out to uh, uh, WS at North Ride, the centre of, you know, not a black town anymore but North Ride. <laughs> And I just, it's a great drive from the Shire or ride from the Shire, isn't oh, it? I just remember walking in there and I just, it felt like a bank. There was no one on air. There was no vibe. I didn't even know there was a radio station there. I just walked in. I went, so what is this? What is this place? Where's your studio? And the studio looked like a consultant's idea of what a studio should look like. And I think the Americans, Clear Channel, had a belief that there was going to be eight radio stations coming out of there. But they didn't factor in John Howard's uh, cross- Media yeah, ownership laws. Yeah. So they could only buy two licenses and that was it. So, and uh, this was always telling because in the foyer at WS in the old days, at Mix and uh, The Edge there, there were all these little placards to have about six different radio yes. stations, but they couldn't do that. So they kind of, I think the Americans kind of washed their hands of it. They went, oh God, this is too hard. And I, uh, Graham Edwards, who I really credit, you know, he was, you know, the main reason I, I came to WS, he wanted to make the station sexy. He wanted to get away from Hans and Kaylee and face painting for the kids. He wanted to make it a show that, that uh, he wanted to have a, a radio show. That's, that's, what he, that's what he told me. So you had to work with Kaylee. Work with Kaylee. Initially, the, yep. um, after Hans Torv left and yep. opened the door for you and that to, was, to yeah, come along. That was a tough time because we didn't see eye to eye on anything. Uh, and it's not Kaylee's fault. Um, it was just that, you know. Radio I, is such a big fan of those arranged marriages. Oh, yeah. she's a talent. He's a talent. We'll get them together. They'll make radio gold. Like yeah. it doesn't always work that way, does it? Well, you know, even when Graham was chasing me, you know, I said, what with Kaylee? And he goes, doesn't have to be. And I said, well, I'm not going to do some lady out of a job that's been there for a thousand years. So, you know, it was, it, but we never, no, we never, I, I don't think we ever clicked as a show, you know, and, and had we stayed, had Kaylee stayed, we would have, I'd be out of a job as well. Actually, that was, that was going to happen. In 2004, they were looking at putting Wendy Harmer on with Paul Holmes. And that's why I knew that I had to get Amanda. I thought if I get Amanda, if I can get Amanda to do breakfast, I'll be safe. So there was that period there of you and Kaylee. And then it was, I remember the time was it, there was a revolving, Door of oh, yeah, their yeah, hosts, you know, yeah. was it Jonesy's breakfast the bar breakfast or something? Bar. The breakfast bar. So you was... had like your Sonia Krugers come yeah. in. You had whoever was a TV talent at the time. Was oh, that was hard. Oh, push through was... that. What's it like working with a different co-host every other day? It was good. It was a challenge, but it was. I'd always look for the days when Amanda. Amanda would always come in on a Wednesday, and she was great because I knew that because uh, the show was just easy. We'd do the show, and I go, oh, Tanya Bulmer was one that we had on Fridays. Who was really good. And uh, Sonia Kruger was good. She was on a, I think, Thursday, and Jessica Rowe was on a Monday. And I've forgotten who we had on, maybe Susie Wilkes or someone. But yeah, yeah it was yeah. just a, there was, a, but a, out of all of them, Amanda, and, and that was the whole reason. I said, I, after Kaylee left, I remember saying to the boss, Willie, I said, mate, if we get Amanda Keller to do the breakfast show, I guarantee you this time next year we'll be number one. And if we're not, I'll leave. I've got two years to go on my contract. You can, 
you know, I, I won't honour that. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll you, the last year of my contract, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I was so sure that we, it would work. So, and Amanda didn't want to do it. She just didn't want to. She was so against doing it. She just didn't want to do was it. Was it the hours? It's just the hours. She just said she had a sweet deal. Uh, she was hosting um, Mondo Thingo, and then that bit the dust, and then they offered her spicks and specs, and, um, but the, the, the money just wasn't, like, the, the money wasn't great, I think, or something, something happened there, and she just said, well, I, you know, I don't want to do that. And, and Spix and, and, and she wanted to continue doing Mondo Thingo and Mondo Thingo didn't, you know, come to fruition. So she ended up by default. I remember she rang me in tears. She rang me and she goes, I said, what's the matter? And she said, WS, the offer's really good. And I went, well, yeah. And she goes, and I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. And the stupid ABC and my stupid husband and you hear Harley in the background. Yeah. I can hear you. <laughs> and I said, look, it's not going to be hard. It won't be hard. It's just, you know, it's just you and me. We've done it before, you know, because because we did a show at Triple M in Sydney when Andrew was sick and it lasted for a week, and uh, that was probably in about two thousand. And I remember thinking, that is the greatest radio show I've ever done in my life, and I'll I'll never get back to that. We'll never have that again, you know. That's that's just. So that was always in the back of your that mind. That was the seed. That was where I'm where Amanda and I uh, became a show was at Triple M, and I and the show it was it was so easy, and I've done a lot of different shows with other people and I knew that, you know, just the chemistry, it's like ice skating, you know, there's, I can't explain it. There's a, sometimes we share a a brain, which is scary, but I know, I know exactly how to manipulate Amanda to say something and she knows how to do that with me as well. So it's like a, it's like a fine dance. So it's always good. Let's sort of explore that in, in sort of greater detail. She was the first person that you saw at, at Triple M mm. uh, as you walked in the door there for that much sought-after job that you, you wanted and then all of a sudden you were in the position wanting to get her as the, the co-host. Mm. Did you think at that stage that it would last, what is it, 11, 12 years 12 now? years. Oh, I was just, all I wanted to do, I had, you know, I had a feeling if she, we got past two years, we'll do this forever. I always had a belief. And I always say to her, you know, how are you going? Um, are you still liking it? I always feel responsible. I remember in the early years when we started in 2005, you know, WS has never been run properly. It feels like it's always been, you know, a country music, a country station in the city. I think, you know, the promotions department, you, we don't have the full promotions department. No. We don't have, we never have what all the others have. No. And, mm. and you sort of think, oh, but, you know, despite all that, you're always like the, the cousin that gets invited to every Christmas, but nobody likes. Yeah. Like. Well, no. Well, the, I like that people <laughs> like it, but yeah. There's no. It's like uh, adding to your analogy. It's like it, it, it's like the cousin that just doesn't, you know, that gets invited. Yeah. Everyone loves him, but you know, shows up and the suits a bit, you know, out. And, you know, oh, that's sort of stuff. So I mean, taking it to where it was from where it started, we discussed this before we came on and you listened to some of the stuff that you did, you know, five, six years ago and yeah. you just think, oh, God, that's a bit naff, that's a bit off, they, yeah. you know, and we're so much sharper now. I guess it's like in many ways it is like a, a marriage that you're working at every day because you're in confined space, you're yeah. up, you see each other when you're probably at your worst at that time oh, of the morning. So what is it about that that makes that chemistry just work for you guys? Um, I'm not too sure. I'm I'm not – I think Amanda and I are very much alike, uh, uh, not so much in our 
uh, likes and dislikes, but in, in the, I think our mums were the same. Her, the late Jennifer Keller and my mum have a lot in common as far as uh, they're, they're quite tough on us. Uh, so there's a real, and I think that's, you know, and Amanda has sort of got the same sense of humour as, as I have. There's a bit of sarcasm and, and I, I think that's a, I think she's more talented than me. I think she's, you know, she's, she's really good. You know, she's like the amount of stuff I see her knocking back. It's constant. There's this constant stream of, you know, do you want to host it? No. Do you want to do it? And it is. It's like every day because we share the same agent. Yeah, and, right. And we don't really, not that, you know, but I'll see, you know, Amanda with conversations about, you know, various TV shows or appearing on such and such a show. And she goes, no, no, I don't want to do that. And I go, well, are you sure? <laughs> I'll do it for you. You know, it's that sort of stuff. So was it difficult for you from the sense that you were a, a one-man band, if you will, becoming, mm. you know, like a, a jock and then having to share your talents with somebody else in yeah. that environment. Because, to be honest, the way things look these days, unless you're a comedian, unless you've been on Big Brother or whoever fries, cooks, whatever, <laughs> you don't get a start. No. So from your point of view, what was that like coming into that environment? Now, you mean you obviously knew Amanda previously, yeah. but still it's a, a thing for you to – be part of a an on air team as opposed to an individual. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I, this is what I had with, when I worked with Kaylee, and I, I liked Kaylee. I had no trouble with her as far as personally, but on air, she was an entertainment fire putter outer. And and a lot of journalists, when you do a show with a journalist, that's what they do. You're working on a bit. You've got some embers going, and you, you're building a bit, and then they'll come and stamp all over it. Uh, I remember Mr. T, who I did a show up in Brisbane um, called. Blood, Sweat and Beers, I think it was called. Yeah, mm. uh, the drive show. I remember one day Adam Gilchrist came in with the um, the World Cup cricket trophy and he's come in and I'm saying, hey, Gilly, give me a look at that trophy. And Gilly can see what I'm doing. And next to me I have these tape canisters, old metal tape canisters, and I'm, I'm not even holding the trophy. I'm going, mate. And Gilly can see the theatre of the mind. He can see what I'm doing. I'm going, that is a great trophy. And then I've dropped it as clay and I went, oh, mate, the top's come off. And then Mr T goes, of course that's not the real trophy. And kill the bit. And then even Gilly said, geez, you just wrecked that bit. You know, so there's a lot of people that you work with, uh, you know, and journalists always put out the entertainment fire, I call it. Oh, you, you're putting something, getting something going. And I, I think that's, you know, what I used to have in those early days. And, I, and what, in answer to your question, when you're working by yourself, then you know where you're going with something. Uh, with Amanda, at least she knows where I'm, where I'm going. And, but there's only one thing that in the early days, because I did a bit of stand-up comedy for a while when I was at Triple M because I'd become disillusioned for the reasons that you said. Yep. It seemed that if you're going to do a breakfast radio show, you had to be a stand-up comic. And I thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So I, I started. I never knew that. Well, I did it. It was funny. It was when Amanda was away on maternity leave with Liam and uh, I was hang- I, I started hanging with Mick Malloy a lot probably a bit too much, and we ended up boozing on down at the uh You would have been a good work experience kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so me and Mick were just we'd, every Friday we'd get on the cans down at Billy the Pigs, and then, you know, we were talking about stand-up, and I said, mate, I don't know how you do it. I could never do it. And he said, are you kidding me? What you're doing right now with all these guys, you, just, you did pretty much a routine. They're all listening to you. They're all laughing. That's all it is. The only thing is they know you. You've got to take it to the next level to get people across the line. And so he said, you should do open mic nights at, um, at the comedy store. And so I wrote a, you know, like a five minute set. I went and did it. And the first night I didn't get up because you got to put your name down. 
Second night didn't get up. The second time I went. And the third night when I thought I wasn't going to get up, all of a sudden, you know, I've got up. And my first bit was like, uh, uh, welcome Brendan and Jay. And, uh, you know, I come out and I said, well, actually it's Brendan Jones, but the, the pen ran out when I was putting down my name. You know, it's a nice little warmer. And, but I do this bit that I always worked on was about how I'd been walking in the forest. I was, you know, I get up and I say, oh, I shouldn't be here today. I, uh, had a very traumatic day. I was out in the national park and I, I found a skull and, uh, it really freaked me out. So I ran the cops and the cops said, wait where you are. We're going to send a, a, a squad down. So it gave me a lot of time to think about this skull, where it came from, you know, who was this person? How did they get here? Why did they have antlers? And so Amanda and I are doing this bit on air and they found a body at Kernel. And so I'm sitting there, I thought, this is an opportunity to bring out some of the old material. So I said, you know, I found a skull once. Amanda goes, human skull? (laughs) No, no, it was a deer skull. It's 626. (laughs) It's just like, and she goes, what? And I said, well, you just wrecked that whole pit. You know, I've told you about my human skull. I've told you about my deer skull bit. And I said, it's like you're on a game show. It's like, you know, human skull. You didn't have to answer the question. Yeah, human skull. So she's ruined the whole bit. So I say that and she says that to me, like we're about to do a bit and she goes, don't human skull me, man. (laughs) A lot of that I can imagine would be the fact that you work in close quarters, as I said, every day, being able to read each other's mind. And Mm. There's not many radio stations or radio shows, I should say, that last 12 years. I know, I know. What's it like being part of what is now, and, you know, you'll laugh when I say this, a Sydney institution? Yeah, I don't, I don't feel like Uncle, Uncle Doug. I don't, you know, I don't. Well, how long would his, he his show 10, have lasted? He was like 11. He was, he was about 11 years. And they say that this is about it. You've got about 12 years in you. So I often think, oh, is this, are we, are we on, you know, we've, well, next year is our last year of contract. And, and I think, I don't know. You know, sometimes I, you know, I can't imagine a day without seeing Amanda. I, I, and, that, and that's the thing. Because some performers and some radio shows, they come in for a day at work mm. and the co-hosts don't necessarily get on or they, you know, they leave work at work and then home at home. Mm. You and Amanda are like, you know, no, no. So we, mates, so. yeah. So we have like a, and you know, I've seen, you know, we've both seen each other's kids grow up. Uh, I went through the whole IVF thing with, um, with Amanda as far as like, you know, I, I knew what she was going through and she was the first person that told me she was pregnant with Liam, you know, all those years ago. So there was a, uh, uh, and to see him now, you know, he's like six foot five. He's this giant hulk of a thing, you know. You think, God. And, mm. and, and I hang out with Jack, her youngest. We go surfing and he's a character. He, he, he reminds me of Amanda. Sometimes when we're driving in the car, it's like, you know, we're driving in the car one day and I said to him, I said, you don't think I'm a good driver? And he said, you're not ideal. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I laughed. I said, that's such a, you sound like your mother. Oh, mm. so what is that like? I mean, in using that. That friendship to enrich in the radio program. Mm. It's obviously not going to detract from it. So. No, no. It's uh, it, it, it. I think it's great. It's you know, you, it doesn't feel like a job. You know, we've had plenty of arguments in our time, uh, but they've always, you know, we always managed to, you know, never go to bed angry. We always patch up before. Uh, you know, the next day. What would be something that you would argue about? Oh, it's, it's content sometimes, like, and it's probably my fault, but it could be something in my head that I see something. And I go, right, this is where we're heading, this is where we're heading. And then a man will say, well, it doesn't always have to end with a joke. And I said, well, what? It would just sound like a boring show. So it's like, 
it's not like a joke so much, but it's just I, I'm I'm very uh, of the mind. You you know, strong beginning, middle, and then strong out, and that's you know, and not with a, you know, a big big yucks of laugh, but ending on a high. You know, I, I think that's the that's that's what I always look at. Having to do with different people that have creative input to your show, as someone that's hosted it for 11, 12 years, you pretty much know what you're about, both of you. It's mm. frustrating getting critical input from management when you're obviously onto a good thing. Well, we don't really get much. We don't get any... Um, air checks, mate? No, no, no air checks. We haven't had an air check for a 1,000 years. Uh, and, and, like, I listen to the show every night on the podcast while I'm cooking tea and... You know, just to hear what we're doing here, and that can be bad in a way because um, you know you can get a bit too close to it. I, I, my, our biggest thing is like I've always liked that old saying: "Does it make the boat go faster?" You know, for the Sydney Sydney to Hobart, you know, does it make the boat go faster? We can take bananas; they're great. You know, yeah, but does it make the boat go fa- faster? So that's the stuff that gets left behind. So I've really come around to that way of thinking. You got a small team that you work with. Mm-hmm. You look down the hall. Kyle and Jackie O. They got a squad bigger than Manchester United. Yes. Yeah. The fact that you're so close to them in the ratings and you sometimes beat them does that give you a satisfaction as well? Oh yeah, that's always great. You know that and, and like Kyle, I've known him for so yeah. You know, we worked together at Triple M in Brisbane, and and he, you know, I remember once he said. He said, you know, I, I wish I didn't like those guys so much. I wish they weren't as successful as what they are. And, and I say the same about, you know, because there's a lot, a lot of people say, oh, Kyle's, you know, he's this and that, but he's not. He's a very nice, likeable, likeable guy. And Jackie's the same. So I always find that, um, but I, that doesn't mean I don't want to beat them. You know, I love beating them, you know, too, because they are a great radio show. To beat them is like, whoa, you know, that's, for me, that's like, you know, that, 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 that's, pretty special doing that kind of thing and 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 being competitive in that environment you obviously listen to a lot of what else is out there Mm. um you're a radio guy yes you love listening to radio where do you think the industry's headed because obviously you spoke about it before as when you came over came in and and took over from david reimer and there was 18 percent being bandied about there's a cluster now around that sort of seven eight nine percent market and that's the top of the the market so Mm. Where do you think it's all sort of heading? I think I think the future for radio is good. Um, a lot of people will say that it's not, but you know the the revenue is great. You know, they're like I think this year, uh, and I don't sit and follow much about radio revenue, but this year it's it's, it's done very very well. Not just for ARN, but Oz Stereo, and uh, you know they, they've made good money. So people are listening to it. So it's making revenue. The day it doesn't make revenue, that's the day we're all you know we're out of a job. So I, I think, but it's always immediate, and everyone's banging on about. Um, uh, you know, if you listen to Spotify in your car or, you know, or Pandora, like it's like about 1% of the audience, yeah. not even that, is listening to it. It's no one's cashing in on it. And at the end of the day, people are always going to want radio. You could put a, you know, I've been hearing the death knell of radio for when they put this stack of CD player in your car. Oh no, everyone's going to, they've got their blau punked. They're going to listen to their six collect, you know, the anthology of Michael Bolton and that's it. But what happens is once that, People are lazy. They go through the whole thing and then they go, oh, I couldn't be bothered changing that. And it's the same with an iPod. You can put like 10,000 songs on an iPod, but you're going to get to a point where you go, hang on, I need to be connected. Yeah, so, I mean, that connection thing will always keep radio alive. Yep, yep. So the, the day you're not connected to the audience, then, then you might as, not, might as well not be in the job. But the basics, you know, traffic, weather, 
uh, even the time. That's they're the basics. But you can't just do a show about that. Well, that kind of worked for Smooth for a bit there, so which which had me worried. <laughs> you spoke about the the confidence thing a little bit earlier as well. You seem to sort of have found that more so now in a TV sense, where you appear on quite a few different TV programs and have done for the last sort of decade or so. Yeah. What's that like getting out there and, and sort of being on different shows and being asked your, your opinion on different things? Yeah, I don't know when I became an opinion maker. I, I, I like TV and uh, I've had a lot of years ago when I first started at Triple M, um, they called me to do an audition with Lisa Wilkinson for a TV show, a morning show on Seven, and we got on very, very well and they said, look, you know, we want you to do this show. Uh, and then they rang Kath O'Connor and they said, well, we need to have him for two days a week if that's okay. And Kath said, no, you're not having him for two days a week. <laughs> and then they said, well, what's your contract with Triple M worth? And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, we'll pay you to get out of it and you can come and work for Channel 7. And I went, I'm not going to leave <laughs> what I've been chasing. My, I've been here for three months. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to leave that for TV, a, a medium I know nothing about, uh, 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 and even if I'm good at it, and it's even more brutal than radio. Yeah. So, like, and I don't know. Like, you know, I could have, I could have done that show with Lisa, and I could have been like Carl Stefanovic. But mm. you know, I, I, I don't know if he makes more money than me. I don't, you know, I, I don't know if I'd want that. I don't, you know, I like, I like doing what I do. So there's not like a, uh, you know, TV is a, is a different craft in itself, and it takes a real skill to present on it as well, which 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 interests me. You know, when you do, when you see guys reading autocue, that's like, you know, different inflections on the microphone yeah. and how you engage the, the, the camera. So, you know, it's, a, it's always something that I've always been interested in. It's something I've always been very unlucky with because from that point, I think once a year I get offered, not offered, but, you know, they say, come and audition for this show. Yep. And then I do it and nothing ever happens. Or it goes to Osher Ginsburg <laughs> or Grant Denyer. So did you audition for The Bachelor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so that's how, did. I did, that's how I ended up on Dancing with the Stars. So I had this call. One man had a call from um, uh, I had a call from Stephen Tate. He said, mate, we want you for The Bachelor. I said, well, Steve, that's flattering, but I'm married. He goes, no, 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 we want you, we want you to host it. And I went, oh, you don't want me. Why don't you get bloody Andrew G or something? And he said, no, no, I want, you know, we don't want a fox in the hen house. We want like a... We want, you know, an avuncular guy that's, you know, not going to try and run off with the girls. We just want that we want you. So I did the audition and, and from, from what I could tell, and I've done a lot of auditions, it went really well. They were really pleased. And one of the dudes came and he said, man, that, yeah, that's exactly what we want, you know, and, and, yeah, yeah. and I've done enough to know when they're bullshitting you. And I thought, oh, okay. And then I had a call about Dancing with the Stars and then they said, oh, why won't you do Dancing with the Stars? And I said, well, I never said I wouldn't do it. Oh, so you would. And I said, well, I heard it's not even coming back. And they said, well, no, it's coming back. And I said, and I thought, well, this, or this Bachelor thing's happening. I'll just tell them, yeah, and then say, I can't do it because I'm doing the Bachelor. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I said, yeah, sure, I can. Put me down for it because I couldn't think of anything worse in my mind of doing Dancing with the Stars because I didn't no. want to do it. And then uh, I remember I got a call. I was in Singapore on my agent because the running joke with my agent was, am I dancing? And Michelle said, no, you're not dancing. Don't even give it a thought. Don't even, don't worry. And I said, well, I don't want to upset Channel 7. She goes, no, no, don't worry. It's going to work out fine. This is just a, you know, a bit of a back burner for you. And then when I get, I came in Singapore, I just get this text from Michelle. Um, bad news. Looks like you're dancing. And I've just gone, oh, but I was happy for doing it, but you know. 
So Bachelor knocked you back Bachelor. and you ended up on, on the dancing with the stars by default. Yeah, by default. <laughs> I know. And I, there's no way. I Because I, I kind of said no to it in 2009 because I, I just can't do it. I, I really feel, I'm very self-conscious about it and I just yeah. I didn't want to look like a dick on TV. My mum watched. Well, lucky I didn't she look. Said, um, <laughs> she said, geez, a funny bike, but he can't dance. <laughs> no. No, no, definitely. <laughs> oh, goodness me. We'll wrap this up in a sec, but we can't let this go by. You're a shy guy. Mm-hmm. Shut. Cronulla won the comp. Wow. What Still were your feelings there? Were you out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. went out? Yeah. yeah so went to- <laughs> take me through that. 50 years in the wilderness and then all of a sudden they won Man, the they won the comp. You that know? was so – like it was I – can't, I can't even believe – I can't even – Articulate that it actually happened. I, 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 you know, from 1978 when I first started supporting the Sharks and they were in the grand final, and I remember my dad, uh, you know, driving around in his little van and had all Sharks ribbons on it, and and we were, it was such a great sense of community about it. And then when they uh, when they lost that grand final, I remember saying to Dad, "Oh, what'll happen?" He goes, "Don't worry, mate. There's always next year." That was 1978. So when it came down to them being in the grand final, when that. We went to the Cowboys game when they played the Cowboys. Yeah. And and they made the Cowboys look like Newcastle. And there was one moment when Jonathan Thurston had this look on his face. Yeah. Ben Barber, a bit of Ben Barber magic, but he had this look on his face and it was like, well, what, what the hell was that? And I, and it was on the big screen. And I started tearing up and my daughter said, she goes, are you crying? And I said, oh, we've just gone into the grand final. We're going to go into the grand final. And for me, that was enough. And then to actually go to the grand final. Yeah, what was that like? Quick. That was mental. They're in charge of the game, then Melbourne, as they do, oh. ground and ground and ground and ground away and got their way to the front. And I was yeah. doing some work for the, the ABC at the time and I said to the caller, Andrew Moore, I said, sharks are cooked here. Like it was just a repeat performance of what so many times had happened before. Mm. And then all of a sudden, Andrew Fafita with one of the most amazing grand final tries you'll ever that see. was. Take me through that. The stadium just erupted. Oh, I guess goes mental. And and I I, I was watching the the game because we we're down in the, uh, the the Melbourne's end, and sharks, uh, um, I mean sharks end rather. And sharks, are, I thought there was a minute twenty to go, and I thought they're not going to make this. They're, they mm. can't hold these guys off. They're mm. going to get there. Oh. And all of a sudden the, the siren went off, and I'm just confused. I went, what's? <laughs> but I've been looking at the clock, and I thought it said a minute twenty. It was only twenty seconds. Yeah. And then we had Big Gal on the radio on Monday and I said to him, he was telling us a story about in Melbourne in 2012 or 2013, it's Storm Sharks, two minutes on the clock, it's 20 to 12. Right. And, and Gal said, oh, we've got this, we've won this. In two minutes, Melbourne convert two tries and win the game. In two minutes. Yeah. You know, what a side. And I just, and then someone would say, oh, have you heard about the conspiracy? I said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Could have been could have been rigged for all I care. Uh, but you know, for me, as we can just get on with our lives. Now, finally, before we go, I'd just like to get some advice from you yes. for people that are looking to break into the industry. So whether they want to become a DJ or whether they want to become, you know, a breakfast announcer or what, whatever they they want to do, what do they need to do apart from appearing on Big Brother? Uh, <laughs> well, I guess just send your tapes out. You just you know, regional radio stations are always going to need people. And that's it. You know, if you're not going to travel out to Lithgow, or Lithgow, that was a dream That's in a city, but if you're not going to travel out to places, far remote places, then you're in the wrong game. You know, uh, like Karatha for me, that was like as far as you can go. That's like so far from here. It's the other it's, end of the earth. Yeah, it is. It's, it's so far away. And But, that you know, that's what you've got to do. 
You know, I, I've, I've spoken to people and they go, oh, I don't want to travel. And I said, well, you're not going to get in the radio. You know, you're not going to start in the city. And if you do, you're never going to do anything other than midnight to dawns. You'll never, not that there's midnight to dawns anymore anyway. So you've got to, you've got to travel. Brendan Jones, thanks very much for your time. Ralph Tucker, thank you. <laughs> there he is, Brendan Jones from WSFM. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Jonesy, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Jonesy and Amanda. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.